0: Today's guest is Alexa Clay. From her website, Alexa is the co-author of the best-selling book, The Misfit Economy. She has degrees from Brown University in Oxford. She says she's a leading expert on subcultures and innovation from unlikely places. Alexa believes the underworld is filled with natural born innovators and they have more in common with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or Exxon than you might think. Today, she's working to create more inclusive innovation ecosystems in cities and regions across the U.S. Welcome, Alexa.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. It's interesting, this idea of the underworld. It was involved in an exchange with a fairly prominent VC on Twitter, I don't know, not too long ago. and He put forth the hypothesis that way more entrepreneurs than you could possibly imagine had at least petty criminal backgrounds. And uh, I fessed up in private to my own little minor life of crime from the time I was about 19 to the time I was about 23. And he said, hmm, that's interesting. Highly correlated with being successful entrepreneurs.
1: Oh, we definitely see that. I think we see a correlation between juvenile delinquency and entrepreneurship.
0: The other one I noticed, uh, you know, I'm a classic baby boomer born in 1953, is that of the other entrepreneurs of my generation an astounding percentage of us had a taste for psychedelics also.
1: That was actually a question I posed on Quora at the beginning of the Misfit Economy research, how much innovation owed to drug use and what kinds of ideas could we see stemming from psychedelics? And I think the other source that you see too is often learning disabilities or dyslexia. So people that learn differently will often find a path for themselves in entrepreneurship.
0: My brother is a good example of that. He, extreme dyslexia, literally has never read a book in his life, but built a successful $50 million company. Not bad.
1: Amazing. Yep.
0: He was extremely intelligent, very hardworking, great values, charming personality. You know, he had every skill you could imagine, but he couldn't read. And so he figured out an industry, construction, and hired people to help him on the things that he couldn't do. Clearly could not have made it in big corporate America but it was a fabulously successful entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that was the real point of the Misfit Economy was to kind of zoom out and get away from so many of the people we traditionally associate with that portrait of the entrepreneur and focus instead on you know people in slums in Nairobi or you know, Bombay and actually really reframe how we think about entrepreneurs. And I think if we look at our jails today, even there's so many incredible entrepreneurs that we have you know, locked up and behind bars that maybe were innovators within the black market and gray market economies. And so part of the work with the misfit economy was actually to understand who are those you know, charismatic innovators who maybe just needed better ties with the formal economy, who because of where they were born, the circumstance you know, found themselves on the wrong side of the law. But there's easily a way to think about how that hustle can be pivoted Towards the formal economy. And I just think there's so many folks that really don't necessarily get those opportunities and don't get those connections into these kind of VC, you know, systems that operate as really privileged walled gardens. And so I was just blown away by the people that I met coming out of jail, in jail, who just have all the skills of the entrepreneur, you know, are charismatic, incredible leaders, manage product quality, grow these brands, in some ways are leaders of, you know, social movements like King Tone was one of the first people I interviewed, who's this notorious gangster from New York City, uh, who was part of the Latin Kings and led the Latin Kings chapter there, and really provocatively said, you know, how can we be more of a social movement? How can we take gangs and that kind of organizing in the US and actually turn it into a productive force for society. In some ways going back to the root of gangs, you know, how they originated in the 50s and 60s as more these solidarity organizations, you know, around particular ethnicities. So for me, this whole misfit economy experiment was an opportunity to just really be in conversation with people that you'd never meet in usual kind of professional circles and hear stories and try and think differently about creativity and and economic opportunity.
0: Cool. You know, I will confess I have not read The Misfit Economy yet, but based on doing my research for today's podcast, I think I will read it. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk about that book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to send you a copy. It's a bit outdated now, and there's, you know, certainly we're seeing so much more informal economy, what with the pandemic and people being pushed into the informal sector.
0: I'll get it on um, Kindle because that's part of my workflow. I, when I read a book for a podcast, I very heavily annotate it and I use the uh, Kindle annotations and I use some secret software that lets me cut and paste from Kindle and things like that so I can create my show notes real nicely. So that I appreciate the offer, but I'll just get it from Kindle. So let's uh, jump into today's topic, which is we're going to focus on a corner of one might call misfits. And that's the domain, and they don't necessarily have to be misfits, but historically they often have been, and that's the domain of intentional communities. We're going to talk mostly about, but as people who listen to the show know, we go every which way, so uh, I'm not going to hold her or I'm not going to hold myself to stick into uh, the script. We'll go where we want to go, to an essay she wrote for Aon.co titled Utopia, Inc., about intentional communities. In fact, the subtitle was, Most Utopia Communities Are Like Most Startups, Short-Lived, What Makes a Difference Between Failure and Success? I also got to tell you, it's a little interesting personal uh, association with this essay. When it first came out, I posted it into one of my Facebook groups, one called Rally Point Alpha, which is a sense-making community that basically looks at cutting-edge ideas and talks about them. It's a fun, very active group. And anyway, Facebook suppressed it. And I go, what the fuck? And it turned out because the picture, the art, had a very young child who was topless and who's a bunch of hippies, basically, right, with uh, you know half-naked kids. And uh, they said, well, we don't know if that's a boy or a girl. And, you know, topless females are not allowed on Facebook. And I go, fuck me,
1: right? I mean, no, I saw that too. Honestly, at least 10 people I know said that the article got censored when they tried to post it on Facebook because, yeah, there was like a top list kid of, you know, six, seven years
0: old in one of the photos they
1: used to illustrate, a hippie commune.
0: That was so screwing. Well, I found a way to do it. I don't even remember how I did it, but I think I quoted it some, from somewhere else. I, like, I don't remember. but I, mean, I got it up. But isn't that weird and fucked up? Just the stupidity of Facebook. But anyway, let's get into what we're going to talk about here. The idea of what you call utopian, but you also refer to later, I think, the more general term, which I'm going to tend to use, of intentional communities. You know, I thought it very interesting, uh, the connections you made between startups and intentional communities. I strongly agree with you, because if you think about it at a high level, both are attempts to insert themselves into an already existing set of relations, forces, and artifacts that at least passively resist their coming into being. You know, as an example, uh, when I was an entrepreneur and when I've uh, been an investor and advisor to entrepreneurs, I often tell people that starting a company is a lot like rowing a rowboat across the North Atlantic in November. The most likely outcome is you're going to die, right? And guess what? The North Atlantic doesn't give a fuck about you, right? Uh, There's waves and storms and the North Atlantic is doing its own thing. And your little rowboat most likely is going to get hit by a wave flipped over and you're going to drown you know you have to think about what can you do to make your boat more seaworthy and generally the advice i give is raise more money than you think you need because the analog to freeboard on a rowboat is money the more money you have the taller your walls the bigger wave it takes to sink you but be very cognizant of the fact that the world just doesn't care about you but in its non-interest in what you're attempting to do in many ways will try to will nonetheless frustrate your attempts And, you know, think about the intentional community domain, a classic example is, uh, you know, attempt to actually build a fresh community on the ground is often heavily frustrated by things like zoning regulations or building codes that weren't intended to frustrate hippie communes or intentional communities, but do so nonetheless. So I think it was a very apt comparison.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think if you're trying to get an intentional community off the ground, you have to be incredibly entrepreneurial. And you need some kind of, you know, business model. I think a lot of people, when they're looking to start an intentional community, it's often from this desire because they have some sort of vision for creating a new world and this discontent with industrial society and the existing ways in which, you know, society is structuring social relations um, and transactions. But to actually sustain that community brings in, a, you know, a totally different skill set where you have to shift from this perspective of being discontent and having a vision to actually creating a new operational model for that society and i think that transition can be difficult for a lot of
0: founders and it's uh, we'll talk we'll get to it a little bit later the mindset of a lot of people attracted to intentional communities may not be a good fit unless you're real careful for doing things like that but let's start with what's the draw why do people want to build these intentional communities you said uh, some sociologists have gone so far as to suggest we are maladapted in the modern world, and that tribal forms of life are more viable. Theories of neo-tribalism suggest that instead of mass society, human nature is best suited to small, caring groups. And then you talk about the famous Dunbar number, etc. And certainly, from an evolutionary sense, that makes sense. You know, of our six million years on the hominid lines uh, and at least 200,000 years as homo sapiens, only the last 10,000 years of people organized at levels beyond the tribe. And mostly they've organized at even smaller levels than the tribe, the forager band, the famous Dunbar number of 150, and usually quite a bit less than that. So it's not surprising that our uh, psychology and our emotions, etc., don't feel uh, well adapted to the big city. I got to say, I've never actually lived in a big city, but I visit quite a lot. And I went to New York, often go to New York, my wife and I, for a month. I always just find it a weird-ass place, especially riding on the subway and all these people looking down at their toes or looking at their phone and consciously not looking at each other and not talking to each other and having this weird kind of isolation in a crowd kind of thing. And I go, that is the most inhumane thing I've ever seen in my life. God damn it, Right. And so I understand this idea of uh, you know sort of a sociological, psychological attractor for smaller forms.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think so many more people now with the pandemic are sort of asking themselves, what is the point of a city? And I think it is dehumanizing. I think there's so many things about industrial society that feel, you know, unnatural to folks uh, that many people crave, you know, wanting to live in a society that has a bit more intimacy, that is kind of a return to a nostalgic past um, in some ways where, you know, folks and you develop relationships over time. And I think, you know, part of the sort of liberal market economy has meant that people have really cut those ties, you know, that so many people leave the places that they're from in pursuit of... A career or a cosmopolitan identity, or, or so many different things, and I think lose touch with a sense of place and also a sense of belonging. So I think a lot of people attracted to intentional community, it's around that belonging question, you know, which is a very American question in some ways. Um, it's that search for identity, that search for a certain kind of peace and catharsis around who one is in the world. You know, I think we see kind of spiritual movements often, you know, animated within intentional communities as well. And so people that are wanting to start new kinds of spiritual practice, certainly in the golden age of communities in America in the 1840s, 1890s, a lot of it was built around that, you know, new economic models. I think a lot of people who start intentional communities have a disgruntlement with capitalism and are looking at different mutualist ways of orientating around resources, and around survival. And so I think that can often be a common motivator. So you see a range of motivations from kind of core emotional needs uh, and relational needs to kind of economic aspirations and new ways of organizing to spiritual pursuits.
0: In fact, I recently uh, did a fairly deep dive into the history of the Israeli kibbutz. And I had a, an interesting podcast recently with Ran of an economist at Stanford, who has, uh, done as a sideline, a bunch of research into kibbutzes, and has kind of analyzed and discussed how some of those ethos apply to the being the binding energy that hold kibbutzes together against classic economic arguments that suggest they should fly apart. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But before we do, here's another quote from the article. Perhaps the irony is that many of the administrative and managerial forces that individuals are running away from within mainstream society are exactly the organizational tools that would make intentional communities more resilient. That regardless of how much intentional communities with a utopian aim seek to step to one side of worldly affairs, they succeed or fail for the very same pragmatic reasons that other human enterprises, notably business and startups, succeed or fail. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. We mentioned in the pre-show chat that I live on a farm deep in Appalachia. Uh, we actually bought it from a failed hippie commune, the last communard, as you would guess, the one with the trust fund, right? And it and it was part of the even bigger back to the land movement in the 1970s that actually was three or four hundred thousand people, three or four times the size of the 19th century intentional community project. And uh, kind of just looking at everything they did and talking to them and getting to know some of them who were still lived in the com- in the county later. Uh, it was just amazing at the gross incompetence in every field of endeavor, uh, from construction to farming to economics, even heat. Uh, they refused on some kind of weird ideological basis to install wood stoves, instead suffering in the cold and the smoke. And it gets cold up here in the mountains uh, from doing all their heating with two open fireplaces. Uh, some of the locals actually took pity on them and tried to give them uh, used wood stoves. Uh, but for some ideological reason, they rejected it. You know, So it's just like, Crazy ass shit, and no surprise, the thing died within about eight or 10 years and kind of dribbled to a, was uh, clearly a failure within 10 years and kind of dribbled to a liquidation after about 15. It is interesting that, you know, those people who want to radically reject everything, unfortunately end up rejecting what they need to succeed.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think also what you're speaking to is the, in, in some cases, you know, the stereotype of the kind of person who's attracted to an intentional community which means that you know these are often people that are in some ways maladapted to mainstream society and you know not able to get by and looking for an alternative and oftentimes that means that people are coming to these intentional communities you know and flocking to these communities you know because they have deep emotional needs that aren't being met um, which can impose a huge emotional burden on these communities oftentimes they don't have the pragmatic skill set For self-sufficiency. And so, you know, I think we see so many instances, even, you know, New Harmony established by Robert Owen in 1825. They didn't get, you know, core agriculturalists. They didn't get people who were artisans to actually make that community sustainable. It was more this kind of dreamer, drifter, seeker uh, mentality that was attracted there. And so the only way the community could sustain itself was really through tourism. So the most prosperous venture there was the local hotel you know i think we see that all too often which isn't to say there aren't any intentional communities you know that have hardcore you know diy skills but i think you know for myself my father grew up on a small farm in missouri in a town called king city and that was a world he wanted to escape having to deal with that kind of regular manual labor is huge and i think for a lot of people farming and that back to the land is a kind of fantasy it's an exotic and once you actually muck in and have to deal with the reality of what that looks like. It can be a lot harder in
0: practice. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rana Abramitsky made that point about the kibbutzes, right? They uh, were trying to do a radical social repositioning. The, you know, the Jews of Europe had historically not been allowed to own land or to farm and had been sort of forced by exclusion into trades and professions. And so most of them really didn't know how to farm or, you know, tolerate that kind of hard work out in the sun and the bugs. And, And let me tell you, being a farmer, it ain't no uh, ain't no picnic. And so, what they did was they built onboarding mechanisms in which people became members of youth communities and youth organizations for a couple of years and developed skills on experimental farms in Europe before they were even authorized to come to Israel and join a kibbutz. In Rand's uh, exploration of the natural forces that one would expect that you have to fight to make an intentional community. Uh, successful. One of them he called adverse selection, which is as you were alluding to, that if you don't have any barriers at all, intentional communities will tend to attract exactly the wrong kind of people. And so you have to build filters and barriers and training mechanisms, which are also filters. As it turned out, these uh, European youth movements, uh, Zionist youth movements filtered out a lot of people who, either for skills or attitude or psychological issues, they didn't believe to be proper to be part of the actually establishing the kibbutz in Israel.
1: And I think that is an interesting point because it's a balance, right? You know, it would be great to have more source and selection for intentional communities in terms of hiring and actually being able to, you know, onboard people with the right skills. But then at the same time, I think a lot of these communities uh, have a commitment to kind of fairness and egalitarianism that makes them reject that kind of filtering system as well. So, you know, it's really a balance of, you know, how these communities can retain a degree of inclusivity while also sourcing for the skills that they need.
0: Yeah, and I think, and again, the work we do, because I will now confess that I'm a member of something called Game B, which is a uh, organization that's trying to redefine the social operating system of the world. And we've been operating in kind of theory space for the last 10 years. Over the next couple of years, we'll be launching some on-the-ground communities that we call proto bees. Right now, uh, working on something called the Proto Bee Incubator, where we're enumerating the dimensions of the design space for intentional communities. And you hit on one, you know, a real critical one: uh, this one of a positive selection for people who are likely to make the community uh, successful, vis-a-vis attention to have diversity in certain kinds of dimensions, including neuro typicality, uh, educational levels, uh, cultural backgrounds, et cetera. It is actually attention. Uh, again, Rand lays out in his uh, book that the most successful kibbutzes were the least diverse, uh, the ones where all the people came from the same town in Poland, for instance, because right? it was easier for them to trust each other. And so as you add diversity in multiple dimensions, the task of building trust becomes higher. That doesn't necessarily say you don't do it, but it does mean that if you are going to uh, create a more diverse set of inputs, then you need to invest more heavily in how people come to trust each other.
1: I think that's really key, and I'd be interested to see some of the blueprints that you're designing um, or the design parameters that you mentioned as well um, for some of the prototypes you're working on. But I remember being part of a community, uh, a temporal community, so short-lived ephemeral called POC21. and. This situation was actually the opposite because we overdosed on engineers um, and people with technical skills. And then where we needed support was more around some of the relational pieces and kind of emotional pieces. And so this was an experiment in a piece of land, a castle really in France, um, a sort of vacated castle. So, you know, no heating and that kind of thing. But people came together to build open source prototypes for low waste you know, solutions. And so a lot of it was around building alternatives to support climate change and around climate change solutions. And the challenge was, you know, probably 50 makers were there and all these different types of maker teams and engineers. And we really had to think intentionally around community building and what, you know, how we could actually develop more cohesion when everyone was so focused on their specific projects. And it was only, you know, for six weeks. That the community lasted but you already saw kind of interpersonal conflicts come up and you know other kinds of challenges so i think you can you can go too hard in the other direction as well
0: absolutely and uh and i will say that in our proto bees uh i expect there'll be considerable diversity in diversity uh for instance at least one person who would like to be the leader of one of the proto bees uh you know his vision is make mostly a community of techies on one extreme my own vision very different one is to and uh, I think I will at least attempt to get one going here in the next couple of years. Is to be a community for upper working class uh, and lower middle class millennials with children, family incomes fifty to seventy five thousand dollars a year. Where we live uh, in rural Virginia, that might be an assistant manager at Wendy's and a worker at the Walmart warehouse. Between the two of them, they make about 60000 a year. They're trying really hard to do what's right, but life sucks. You know, the schools are terrible. The cultural attractors are not good. And these are, in my view, the folks that really need to uh, have a better way of life that's real, that actually works for them, but not full of too much cultish stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is spot on. And I think so much of my disenchantment with intentional communities has been around just the extreme privilege of a lot of those people. You mentioned, you know, early on the sort of trust fund intentional community problem. And, you know, when I think about who actually needs, you know, these resources, when we think about the opportunities for transitioning land and real estate, two communities, it's actually people in the lower and middle classes that could really benefit the most, as well as an emerging generation that feels, you know, cut off from some of the economic opportunities that maybe their parents had. And I think we often see this correlation between, you know, these moments of economic depression and this interest in intentional communities. And I think the kind of peak inequality that we're experiencing today is definitely going to be a driver for people to kind of rediscover some of the value of these communities.
0: Yep. Uh, what people call the precariat, right? People who are just on the edge of falling out of the upper middle-class family background that they may have come from into being, you know, permanent baristas or what have you. And, uh, you know, we're thinking that those folks may well be an attractive part, the uh, recruitment into these uh, proto-Bs, bees, uh, especially if we can organize real economic work, right? And as you point out in your article, several places, many of the more successful intentional communities uh, that live today, like Findhorn, and there was one in uh, Brazil you talked about, and I think the one in Italy, Tamara, uh, an awful lot of their income is actually very meta. You know, it's conferences and spiritual tourism and things like that. At least personally, I'm not interested in that. It might be a sideline, a little bit of a boost to the economy. Uh, But it seems to me that if this idea of proto-bees or intentional communities is really going to prosper, it has to be, coupled to the real economy of the world. On the other hand, it has to not adopt all the bad values of the real economy of the world. Our game B critique is that game A, the i.e. the status quo, is riven with game A malware, essentially game theoretical uh, race conditions that occur, which essentially guarantee bad outcomes. You know, to give an example, if you're in an industry, let's say everybody is uh, being ethical and abiding by reasonable cultural norms, and The industry is, uh, you know, is prospering for everybody and doing a good job. All it takes is one asshole company uh, to, let's say, uh, you know, push the edge on sleaziness, and unfortunately, it may well work and increase their profit margins and their stock price and all that. And everybody else is unfortunately forced into a game theoretical race to match them in sleaziness. At least it's one of our theories that that's what's been going on in America since about 1975 is a race to the bottom around ethics and virtue in business. So while we want to be able to compete with the status quo, we have to do so in an ethical way. And that's a challenge.
1: You know, this is terrible to say, but even recently, I've been feeling nostalgic for the era of old school capitalists. Um, that kind of paternalistic capitalism of, you know, people like Hershey, who set up these entire towns that were almost intentional communities in some way, but with the idea that you really, you know, took care of your workers and were designing educational systems for them and just creating all of this kind of social safety net. And I think at times it's a bit creepy because you see these capitalists who veer into sort of culture building you know, it had a moral imperative and a consideration. And I think business leaders today, you know, they don't have that sense. You know, oftentimes they're not paying the taxes that would afford those kinds of safety nets.
0: I would agree, except that uh, I don't have much nostalgia for the proprietary model where it's the business guy doing it so much better for the community to self-organize and be a bottoms up creation. Uh, You know, that's fundamentally democratic in its governance. And that's something that we're very strong on in the Game B world, is it has to be self-organizing, network-centric, decentralized, and in some form, at least, democratic.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. We're doing, you know, I'm doing a lot of work now with deliberative democracy and citizen panels and just thinking how we can get, you know, I think economic democracy isn't something that we experiment with too heavily here in the States. It feels like it's often uh, democracy is talked about in political spheres rather than economic spheres, and I do think that's important. When I was in Germany, there was a whole movement uh, for self ownership, and I think you do see more democratic forms of of economic organizations existing there, which you know means that it isn't just external shareholders that are controlling how organizations and firms are run, but it's actually the people who you know have a stake in these companies, the workers who have a say in the direction of the firm. And I think you know there are limits to that too. I think there's more room for experimentation to understand exactly what are the kind of systems and structures that work to allow for that kind of cooperative organizing within companies.
0: Unfortunately, there's actually more examples than people realize in the U.S. Uh, You know, there are co-ops, for instance, both employee-owned co-ops and customer-owned co-ops. As a farmer, uh, we're members of two co-ops, basically purchaser co-ops where we buy our supplies and, you know, fertilizer and. Uh, certain kinds of uh, field work, et cetera. And uh, if the co-op is profitable at the end of the year, we get a little dividend. Though truthfully, they don't aim to produce much in the way of dividend, rather to provide the services and products to the farmer at the lowest possible cost. In town, where we have a little condo, we are a member of a grocery co-op. Uh, again, uh, consumer-owned, and it's quite interesting. And then, of course, thousands of credit unions, which are essentially depositor-owned financial institutions, and there's still even a couple of hundred mutual banks, which are a very, very interesting loophole in the banking regulations, which allows a group of people to come together and form a bank with no capital. So there are a lot of forms out there, uh, but for whatever reason, in general, uh, have not been too successful at outcompeting the more rapacious forms of capitalism. And we think part of the challenge is how do we take some of the learnings from these forms and hybridize them so that they're more efficient and more effective and use higher order uh, methods of collaboration to literally be able to outcompete the other guys.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. I follow pretty closely the work of the Democracy Collaborative, and I know they've been doing a lot to think about how some of those cooperative models can be applied to the pharma sector and in healthcare. And I just think it, you know, it makes so much sense when we're seeing pharma companies have these really perverse incentives to, you know, keep prices high, um, you know, really believe in individual ownership around R&D when, you know, it makes so much more sense for research and development to be more of a, you know, an open source process, a kind of walled garden with, common ownership around IP. And so, you know, I think those types of things are exciting where, you know, if we could be shareholders of, you know, more of a public option pharma company that could actually deliver to the needs of most Americans, I'd love to see something like that take off. But yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, relational work. There aren't necessarily super cut and pasteable templates for this. You know, it's it's very contextually driven.
0: And it's hard work. As you point out, 90% of startups fail. So we should not expect every one of these ventures to be successful, but learning will accrue from each one. Again, our uh, Game B uh, hot buttons is it's a moral imperative for the community to share the learnings across the community. So if we do a startup auto repair business in Stanton, Virginia, for instance, on Game B principles and Game B collaboration methods and Game B democratic governance mechanisms, and it works we have a moral obligation to write that up and uh, share it with the broader community so people can take that template and apply it elsewhere. That's how we see uh, essentially experiment, uh, results in learning, results in propagation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think the whole IP system that we've got today is crazy. And it's the first question that VCs often ask when they're investing in something is around that proprietary you know, knowledge. And I think it just really prevents the diffusion and rapid acceleration of innovation in so many instances. You know, it can average take 40 years for a new technology to be deployed and socialized within society. And I think that's because of that IP problem. And even, you know, whole institutions that, you know, sit on IP patents that never get, you know, applied. I think if Harvard were to take so many of the patents that it was sitting on and actually make them available to a public commons, I think we'd re- see really interesting kind of interventions develop in and opportunities for economic growth for more
0: kinds of people. Let's get back now a little bit to the discussion of intentional communities. You know, you, you list a, a, a series of failure modes. I thought that one was interesting. Uh, I think you had fun putting it together. Malarial infested swamps, false prophecy, sexual politics, tyrannical founders, charismatic con men, lack of access to safe drinking water, poor soil quality, unskilled labor, restless dreamer syndrome, land not suitable for farming. There's so many ways you can fail. And one of the patterns I noticed there, and one I, you know, Frank, of course, noticed uh, in the history of intentional communities is what one might call the cult phenomenon, where the community gets captured into some bad set of attractors around some mix of false prophecy, sexual politics, tyrannical founders, and charismatic con men. What can you say about the bad attractor of cults with respect to intentional communities?
1: I mean, I think too often, you know, this is the story where you have a sort of charismatic con man who can create a sort of new wave spiritual philosophy that can be really, you know, attractive to people and people that are maybe a bit lost or searching for that belonging or that sense of orthodoxy will be attracted to that. And, you know, so often that doesn't translate into, you know, a community that is grounded. It really translates into, you know, this kind of false prophet. And some people are better, you know, peddlers of, you know, visionary plans than they are actual kind of operationalists behind those plans. So, you know, I think we definitely see this problem again and again. And I think that's, that's sort of the difference in my mind between a cult and an intentional community is how much is that community dependent on a singular individual and a singular vision. And I think what's terrible about so many of the intentional communities that veer into that cultish kind of operating mentality is you recreate so many tyrannies within that system that are worse than mainstream society. And so the kinds of challenges that you're dealing with from whether it's like deep misogynistic tendencies of a founder to kind of a real need for control uh, by one person, I think you just encounter so many psychological dysfunctions within that community that are far worse than anything that you would have in mainstream society.
0: It does seem to be a bad attractor, and uh, a lot of it's around what we call psychotechnologies, and psychotechnologies can include things like meditation or psychedelic drugs or even religion or psychotherapy. And when people are approaching these uh, psychologically interesting states, uh, they seem to be more susceptible to cultishness. And while we think psychotechnologies may actually be very useful for helping people make the transition from their game A malware, as we call it, and be able to play game B as real humans again, uh, it's a dangerous liminal zone where uh, unless one thinks from the beginning about things like governance, you know, you asked about what are some of these design dimensions, Another one is we call governance, which is before someone launches a proto-B, they really ought to define what is the governance operating system going to be. If we look at the history of uh, intentional communities, they can be all over the place from the charismatic dictator, not one we would recommend. Uh, To the other extreme, the uh, original Israeli kibbutz, uh, all the governance initially was done by a general meeting every Saturday night of all the members. That turned out to be okay for building solidarity, but not so good at making decisions. And so over time, uh, the Israeli kibbutzes uh, evolved towards hybrid models where there was an appointed uh, board of directors, essentially, that managed many parts of the kibbutz. But certain major decisions, such as the budget, were still subject to approval by the general meeting. So, And they just kind of learned by trial and error and we strongly suggest to help immunize against cults, that a transparent governance system be put in place from day one, and that it be realized that it's an experiment and process. And so it doesn't become something that you worship, but rather something that you evolve.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's this term tyranny of structurelessness, which is often a critique of these systems, you know, in a place where there's lacking clearly defined rules and protocols for decision making, that often you'll have a culture emerge um, that becomes pretty tyrannical and centered around a few, you know, personalities. And you have a culture emerge that's not really named, that's more informal, that can be pretty toxic. Um, And I think you've even seen this happen in formal companies, you know, in, in places where maybe there's a relaxed hierarchy, and then you have an informal culture that kind of you know, ruse the company. And so I think spotting that early and being able to actually kind of have a complement between these formal and informal systems is pretty important.
0: And exactly right about real companies. The third company I worked for was a wonderful business example. It was my last job in corporate America before I became a entrepreneur. They fit that bill. It was poorly structured organizationally, very loosey-goosey, and was utterly rife with sort of politics, bad faith, uh, sexual harassment, and I, I was really glad to have had that experience because for many years after, I said I would often say, "What would Company X have done in this situation?" Uh, let me make sure I do the opposite. And so, yeah, the uh, the tyranny of unstructure, I like that. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to worship the structure either, you know, uh, particularly because the idea of intentional communities is still not well thought through and not mature. We don't have wonderful, uh, repeatable success models. It seems to me that we have to think about each of these as an experiment, kind of a, an experiment in design space. As, as I say, we we're thinking through these many different dimensions. What are your entrance rules? What's your capital structure? What's your location? What's your economic model? What's your resource self-reliance model? How are you going to do education? You know, how are you going to do marriage? You know, And there are different settings on each of those dimensions because it's a high dimensional space. The combinatorics of all those dimensions is, you know, some vast number greater than all the stars in the universe. So you one cannot say in principle what design setting is right. And of course, some of it's going to be contextual. A design setting that works in fertile farmland in Virginia may not work at all in urban Detroit, for instance. And so we see this exploration of the dimensions of design as a ongoing process and that we'll even learn from the failures, okay? This set of settings sort of work, but oops, this one we got wrong and that's why uh, it crashed and burned. So probably next time people ought not do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I hear and what you're saying is this need for kind of cultural sampling basically and cultural hybridity. Um, And to me, that's fascinating, because I do feel like we're in a moment when we can sort of borrow and steal from so many different kinds of cultures. So you can have like an element of open source culture, uh, mainstream business culture, you can have like a, a dash of kind of radical hippie culture, you know, I think it's when these things and these different strains begin to kind of come together, that you can see more resilient types of community that isn't just dependent on a singular belief system.
0: And that's the meta design problem, right? That you have to set some settings for each community, but you have to realize that it's a sample from a much, much higher set of possibilities. If we launch three bees in the next two years, I would hope that they're actually different in how they uh, configure themselves in design space so we can get some more rapid learning that way, rather than being doctrinaire and say, this is the one way to do it. That's very dangerous.
1: And then also to avoid that sort of cultural stagnation piece. I mean, you mentioned that the land that you purchased and live on used to be, you know, an intentional community. And I think this ability for intentional communities to reinvent themselves and evolve is a challenging one because I think so many can stagnate in the kind of energy with which they were founded. Um, but this idea of kind of legacy planning for intentional communities is really interesting how, how these communities can kind of cede power and imagination to new generations. I have a colleague and friend who lives on an intentional community in West Virginia that was founded in the 60s and now trying to give leadership and strategic direction over to you know, a generation of millennials. And that comes with a lot of challenge you know, a feeling that the older generation now has this loss of control, um, you know, trust issues that arise, and also this question of who gets to be invited in to be that next generation kind of steward. Um, How is that process fair and equitable?
0: And uh, in the kibbutz experience, they had exactly the same thing. Uh, The first generation of kibbutzniks were very highly motivated around two things, uh, Zionism, the return of uh, Israeli people to Palestine, and Radical egalitarian socialism. And uh, those were bedrock fundamentals in the uh, original kibbutz. And in fact, until 1977, essentially all the kibbutzes were radically egalitarian, where everybody got paid exactly the same amount, whether they were the lawyer or the accountant or the person who washed dishes in the uh, communal dining hall. As the other generations, you know, kibbutzes started in like 1910, so it's been around for a long time. So there's been quite a few generational changes. Over time, uh, the next generations were, frankly, much less interested in either Zionism or socialism, uh, in that they had been born in Israel. So Zionism had already been achieved. And socialism, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union, but even before that when it was sort of clear that socialism maybe as written, wasn't such a great idea, uh, had much less draw upon the minds of the next generations. And the later generations of kibbutz became much more hybrid, much less doctrinaire uh, in either socialism or Zionism. And it seems that one should anticipate that. If one's uh, movement is going to be successful over generations, uh, generational transition and evolution and change needs to be expected.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know this is the case, too, in this emerging kind of allyship between nuns and nuns. So N-O-N-E-S and N-U-N-S. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but...
0: Not at all. Tell us about this. This sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, it's been fascinating. A number of my friends have been involved in this, um, and it really started out as bringing together spiritual nuns, so N-O-N-E-S, which are basically millennials that identify as spiritual but not religious. And so that point around kind of uh, not wanting to be part of the orthodoxy of religion, but still having, you know, a spiritual domain to oneself and looking to explore that. And then Catholic nuns and UNS and bring them together in in conversation. And eventually these, you know, millennials actually took up residency in convents. And so the whole conversation was how could the sort of learnings and insights from these Catholic nuns be passed down to this new generation of millennials that were equally committed to social justice and some of the things that these more kind of liberal progressive sects of the Catholic church were committed to, and also a kind of real estate play. There's so many Catholic institutions right now that don't have a new generation. The average age of a nun is something like 77. And so they're not getting these new converts that they would need to actually breathe fresh life into these communities. And yet they have these incredible institutions, structures. And so part of the conversation was how could some of these infrastructures be transitioned to some of these, you know, millennial communities what kind of investment tools would support that and you know culturally you know would there be a good fit and so there's been a number of dialogues and residencies to sort of grow thicker connections and trust between these two very different communities to see if that can potentially be fruitful
0: that's really interesting and something i never would have thought of but i'm glad people are out there working on that space uh, any early returns on whether it looks like it's going to work
1: i think when you look at you know just some kind of incentive systems at play i think you're seeing the aging nature of the nuns, you're seeing healthcare costs, and you're seeing a lot of these churches be sold off into the speculative real estate economy where a church can get converted into condos or something like this. And so for them to feel like to take care of some of you know their retirement, their healthcare costs, for them to feel values aligned, it makes sense that they would try and, you know, transition these assets to communities that felt In keeping with their tradition for social justice, even though it could be, you know, named very differently. So I think I think it has potential, you know, you're seeing an alignment of incentives. But you know, there's a lot more kind of trust to be done, but certainly at a residential point, for millennials to begin to inhabit some of these infrastructures, you know, we're already seeing that happen. I'll send you an article, I know the New York Times profiled it recently as well.
0: Very interesting. Uh, let's jump back into your article a little bit and, again, explore some of these dimensions of design that uh, surfaced in your description of, I don't quite know how to pronounce it, Nemenher? Nemenher? in Italy? Yeah.
1: I say Domenher.
0: Okay, Domenher in northern Italy, Torino, I think it was. This is interesting, some of the uh, choices they made in the design space. Uh, One of which, which struck me as interesting and somewhat different than some of the thinkings that I think our community has been doing, but nonetheless worth thinking about, is Damanhur is a federation of communities made up of more than 600 full-time citizens. That's pretty big for an intentional community. Primarily organized into small nucleos or makeshift families. The nucleos started as groups of 12 people. Now they number 15 to 20. Scale is critical, Tamaris, one of the members, cautions. If you have too few people, you implode because you don't have enough inputs. But if you have more than 25 people, then it's hard to create intimacy and keep connections close. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think being able to design different scales for intentional community is super important. And, you know, in terms of companies that I've been a part of or organizations, anytime you get over sort of that 25 mark, you do start to lose some of the magic. And so for there to be a more distributed and self-governing approach within this federation model, I think that's a huge evolution um, that I think owes to you know the success of this community in so many ways. Another important thing about this community is they also allow people to have kind of normal jobs. And so it can be a mix of serving the community and having labor that's tied to a mutualist orientation, while also being able to have you know side hustles uh, within the local community or through freelance work. And so I think that allows people to actually be able to sustain their presence and makes the community a bit more economically viable.
0: People I know in Spiral have a similar kind of model where you know there's a mix of engagement with the outside world, in fact, probably a majority, as well as internal uh, mutual work. So that's an interesting dimension as well. How much of one's economic work is within the community and for the community versus outside and bringing the resources back to the community that are earned outside. Well worth experimenting with.
1: Yeah, I remember early on, you know, in my conversations with groups like Inspiral, there was this metaphor of, do you want to be an island or do you want to be a peninsula? With this idea of kind of how porous do you want your boundaries to be? Sometimes, you know, being an intentional community that's too much of an island can be really closed off economic opportunities, certainly, but also can have a kind of cultural stagnation problem. And so being more of this peninsula where you still have some degree of kind of osmosis with mainstream society can bring oxygen into your community and create viable opportunities for people and also have a bit more, you know, foot traffic that allows that community to evolve and to bring in new ideas and not to get
0: too isolated. In fact, I use a fairly explicit biological metaphor. It's interesting you mentioned oxygen. Uh, I suggest that a community of this sort ought to uh, have a boundary around it, which we think of as a semi-permeable membrane. This is essentially how the cell membranes work in our body. Every cell membrane has a different setting on its permeability, what it lets in and what it lets out. Uh, it typically lets out its metabolic toxins, it's making sugar, making proteins, or Toxic side products, which have to be gotten out of the cell or the cell will die. And so they leave the cell and they eventually get picked up into the blood and taken to the liver to be cleaned up. But the cells also need to be permeable on the way in. They need to be able to absorb, you know, oxygen. Oh, they also have to export CO2. That's really important. Uh, oxygen, food stocks, etc. Essentially, the attributes of the membrane, of the ins and outs, the input-output algorithms of the membrane are absolutely critical for the health of the cell. And I would suggest thinking about the boundary of the intentional community in the same way would be very helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. Otherwise, I think there's a risk of groupthink and incestuousness and a bit of you know, these challenges where you lose perspective, as we were talking earlier about how can these communities stay relevant and evolve, that you know, what you've described creates that space for that membrane that can be penetrated where it's not just closed off from the rest of the world.
0: And I've also suggested that, uh, as you did, uh, it's a a useful way to recruit. For instance, in an essay I wrote about proto-bees, I suggested that the uh, community uh, become attached to the wider community's basic social functions like recreation league softball and become members of the volunteer fire department, join the relevant churches in the community that the members might have interest in, et cetera. And uh, that's another way to not become sterile and too inwardly focused. And also, by the way, uh, is a way to communicate the story of the community to other people who might want to become members.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's most interesting to me and not purely from a recruitment place, but just to say the part of this that's most interesting isn't the existence of the intentional community itself, but the alternative ideas and um, processes and subcultures that get developed within that community that can have application to you know mainstream society and to sites around the world and so I think the more porous those boundaries, the more you allow something to to spin out you know can we see intentional communities as these kind of sandboxes for spinning out really important you know mutualist ideas around cooperatives that we were talking about or kind of other forms of
0: culture and governance I mean I think if we do experimentation in governance. Uh, we may find some unusual things that work. You know, for instance, uh, one of the areas I work in is called uh, liquid democracy, uh, which is this odd hybrid between direct democracy and delegative democracy, uh, in that in theory, every single person can vote on every single issue. But the truth is, most people aren't that well informed on most issues, nor are they interested. So you can delegate your vote in any domain you want to somebody else. So Let's say if we're talking about national politics, maybe I delegate my uh, vote on defense to my retired Air Force uh, Colonel uncle, and I delegate my vote on the environment to the Sierra Club, and I delegate my vote on gun control to the NRA. Uh, I'm able to essentially custom build my own representation. And here's the key part, I can take it back at any time.
1: When you've lost trust in, in who you've outsourced it to, yeah.
0: Yeah, my uncle went nuts god damn it right he used to be uh, sort of anti-war uh, because of his own experiences but now he's become a war hawk god damn it I'm taking my vote back right? and you can do that and then you can vote at any time on any issue and override your delegation so for instance let's say there's a you know a vote to go to war in Iraq uh, one can cast one's own direct democracy vote on that which then overrides uh, all of your delegations which is quite interesting I know it's a good idea but whether it will actually work or not don't know but trying it out at the scale of an intentional community of a few hundred would be a great way to get some sense of uh, what game theory traps lurk in liquid democracy and what interesting opportunities lurk there as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love that idea that these are prototyping zones um, for concepts like liquid democracy. I know I did a piece at some point for Anne as well around live action role-playing and these kinds of experimental worlds that we can pop up and dissolve. And I think we can use that genre to really test out different ideas. And, you know, if we're trying to experiment with a new financial system, you know, beyond a kind of fiat currency, what does that look like? Let's play, you know, let's do a LARP for a live action role playing game, you know, over the course of a weekend and get into some of those issues. I remember um, I had a course uh, that was around solidarity economy principles in college. And at the end of the course, we had a kind of gift economy moment. And it really failed. You know, after we'd sort of intellectually really gotten behind a lot of ideas associated with gift economy, we actually created one at the end of the class. And, you know, goods weren't transferable. There was a reason that, you know, cash needed to exist. And someone who sort of knitted socks and wrote poetry, you know, there wasn't a large enough market for that. So I think the more that we can sort of test some of these alternatives so that in moments where we do experience elements of societal crisis, that these ideas are are ready. I remember with the financial crisis feeling like what a big opportunity to start to seed alternatives within the system. And yet it didn't happen. We kind of rebooted to the existing kind of, you know, mainstream uh, financial system. And so, you know, I think the more that these ideas can be, you know, tested and ready for times where um, you know we're, we actually have the potential through crisis to adopt them. We've seen this with the pandemic in terms of ideas like universal basic income getting traction in a way that we would have never seen earlier.
0: Absolutely, I love the idea that we're pre-testing pieces that we might need in a crisis. And crises will come, and uh, at least our game B synthesis is that they're going to become more and more rapidly uh, as we head into the limits and the boundary conditions, both of the earth and our cognitive capacity to manage the ever growing complexity.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, crisis kind of shakes up and ceases to normalize so many of the ways in which. We govern and procedurally, you know, we do things in society. And so I think, you know, crisis allows us to take that sort of anthropological eye to our culture and say, and look at it exotically when, you know, too often it does just become normalized. So, you know, I think crisis does breed these moments where we can sort of go exploring further afield and bring in alternative ideas that we wouldn't necessarily consider when everything is going, you
0: know, well. People don't change when they think things are going well. Let's get back to Dam Her, and Her. Uh, and talk about another dimension, design dimension, as I call them. Uh, and that's what I'd call social norms. From your article, you say the entire community is governed by a constitution that enables a so-called college of justice, which upholds the values of that constitution. What are some of the things that were in that constitution, if you remember?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't actually remember the specifics of the constitution, but I know that it what was important about it was sort of democratically chosen. And then I think what Damanhur has really allowed is for overcoming that charismatic founder problem where different people could contribute um, in important ways and creating, you know, almost like a secondary tier of leadership and roles. So there wasn't just, you know, this dependence on one person. And so I think in that way, it was really successful. Um, You know, so they have these kind of king, queen roles that become really important um, for maintaining the ideals and practices of the community, Um, one of the ideas I love that they do actually is um, rather than just let like emotions fester, they'll often, you know, use these huge cathartic kind of play fights where the community can get together and resolve challenges through these play fights. You know, I think just having therapeutic practice baked into some of these communities can be really important. Um, and so that felt like you know something that was actually developed outside of the vision of the founder to create more of this uh, emotional catharsis for members.
0: Yep. But what I liked about it, I call it institution building. Uh, you know, The play fight thing actually seems like it was stylized and had a set of uh, rules and things of like that. They may have evolved over time, but it sounds like they eventually became sort of stable. And uh, I always warn people that Building institutions is a good thing often, not a bad thing. People think of institutions, oh, my God, those are these controlling things. But if we build them ourselves, it makes our lives so much simpler uh, because we don't have to rethink everything every goddamn time. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exhausting about being in a culture in beta is, you know, you're you're sort of designing and, and building everything from the beginning. But once as a community, you've established some of those cornerstone, you know, rituals, You know, I think that's when culture really begins to set in a bit more Um, and it isn't as kind of emotionally exhausting, but you feel like things get ritualized. And I think, you know, not to underestimate that. um, I think that's something that's really needed. Friends of mine developed this tool called uh, the Community Canvas, and it's almost like the business model canvas in terms of being able to, to think through how you create communities. And, you know, that's a huge component of it is what rituals do you design for that community?
0: I'd love to have a link to the community canvas, but something that's out uh, visible in the world.
1: I'll definitely send it to you. I think for folks, even, you know, I just use it as I think about different communities that I'm a part of and how we can make them, you know, more resilient and viable. But, you know, they're different. Ways in which they surface, you know, what are the shared experiences of that community? What are the different roles within this community? What's the governance structure? How do we, you know, talk about this community? What is the underlying kind of financial model of this community? So, from if you're kind of working to sort of create a community, it provides a sort of guided way to think about that.
0: Perfect. I mean, that's exactly what uh, we're trying to do is what are the dimensions that you need to think about? I'd love to see what other people have done in that space.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link after we get off.
0: And we'll include it on the episode page, as usual, at JimRutShow.com. right? (laughs) Another group you talk about, which is interesting, is the Amish. Uh, And I have a little family connection there. The Ruts were originally Amish or Old Order Mennonite, which is very similar. Hard to tell exactly what back in 1690. Uh, Fortunately, our branch had the good sense to get out of that stuff somewhere along the line. You know, researched them and followed them a little bit, because I do think they have some ideas that are worth uh, developing. One that's kind of at the strong end is the Amish practice of shunning, essentially, rather than having courts, et cetera, and police. uh, If you violate the norms in the Amish culture around business deals, around social interactions, uh, I don't know what all else there might be, probably the use of technologies that have been forbidden, you can be shunned by the local uh, subset of the Amish, which is that they basically won't talk to you, period. I mean, literally. And that's very, very powerful. Uh, But of course, it can also be subject to all kinds of abuse.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty brutalist. You know, you can see how when that is the consequence of not obeying kind of certain rules or, you know, community etiquette, um, that that's a severe consequence that people would fear enough to follow the rules. To me, that feels like more of a kind of 1.0 version of a practice that the Amish have you know, that's that's eons old. But I think there's some things that the Amish do that I I feel like are more relevant to, you know, intentional communities that are developing today. Um, you know, one is around their treatment of technology. And so I think there's been a lot to say that the Amish aren't necessarily preaching total Um, technological abstinence, but rather that they're very intentional in terms of the technologies that they take on board. And so when I spent some time in Lancaster, I remember reading Amish newspapers. And what really struck me about them is just how boring the newspapers were. They really felt like, you know, small town papers from the 50s that were just updates on kind of weather and um, you know, announcements about marriages and death. But then also you had these advertisements within the Amish newspapers and the way in which they advertised different technologies, like a cell phone, for example, was based on their quote unquote, plain features. And so, you know, cell phones were advertised as not having distracting apps, um, but rather, you know, just being able to call someone. And I think that kind of focus on, well, what is the essence that we need from this technology? at a time when when people are facing kind of heavy technological addictions is a bit of a cure-all for society today to develop that intentionality around adoption of certain tools and, and technologies. And I know one entrepreneur who was developing a kind of manure in um, – Mexico, who, you know, when he was able to sell this new product to the Amish, for him, that was the biggest victory because he knew they would never uh, get behind something that wasn't really practically useful and tested. And so, you know, I think Silicon Valley, you know, entrepreneurs and consumers could learn a lot in being a bit more intentional around that kind of technological adoption piece.
0: Yep. And the broader Mennonite community, of which the Amish are a part, they do the same thing, but they do it with uh, more variants. You know, they're all different. There's like 250 different uh, denominations of Mennonites, which is quite surprising since there's less than half a million of them. Uh, you know, they've essentially explored the design space of technological appropriateness. You know, some Mennonites... Don't allow cars. Some do, right? Some allow electricity. Some don't. And they've reasoned for years about this at the local equivalent of a parish level. Something like fifty families have, uh, you know, talked about each new technology and deliberated about it for years before they made their decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think it is, as you say, a huge spectrum in terms of what technology is deemed appropriate by different communities and even within families. I remember staying with one Amish family. And they had one, um, I guess, electric light in their house that they never used, but when their cousins would come and visit, they had it for them um, because they were, you know, more liberal technologically. And so it's not, I wouldn't say we want to get into, you know, developing kind of really intensive sort of blockers against technology, but just to have some kind of intentional process for actually ask, how will this technology affect our sense of well-being in our community?
0: I wouldn't be opposed to uh, banning cell phones, for instance. I think one could make a strong argument that damn things produce grossly more harm than they do good. Uh, I mean, shit. uh, You know, I was a, even though I helped start one of the cell phone companies, uh, one that's called T-Mobile now, I was a very late personal adopter. I used to, probably as late as 2010, I'd say, don't call me on the cell phone unless you want to talk to my socks in my sock drawer. Uh, And only very late in the day that I get seduced to the damn things interestingly, I, uh, right now, I just lost my cell phone someplace. I don't know what's in my office, in my car or something. And I was chatting with my wife and I'm saying, you know, I'm very tempted just to say, fuck it, and not get another one and uh, see what it's like to live entirely without a cell phone for six months or a year. And I suspect it's just fine. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, you're seeing this similar kind of counter movement where a lot of Silicon Valley, like tech entrepreneurs are sending their kids to Waldorf and to these schools that, you know, are sort of technology free zones, you know, German forest schools, that kind of thing. Because in some ways, you know, they have a distaste for what they developed and what they were part of just like that. I know whenever I've gone cell phone-less, I feel like it imposes more harm and difficulties on the people around me. But yeah, I think, this sort of hermit life and that kind of essentialism, I think we're certainly learning a bit more through the pandemic. You know, what are the essential things that I actually need to get by? Who are the essential people that I need around me and that kind of thing. So I think there's a kind of Walden instinct that's definitely emerging through this crisis.
0: And of course, it'd work a lot better if you're part of an intentional community of say 150 people who have really strong all day interactions with.
1: Yeah, I mean, and certainly, like, I think a lot of the sort of prepper communities feel pretty vindicated by the pandemic because they've been preparing for this apocalypse for some time.
0: And I must confess, I have mild to moderate uh, prepper tendencies. And uh, as I've said before on the podcast, probably got a small amount of social discredit for the last 30 years, right? There's a reason I live on a farm uh, deep in Appalachia, right? And have generators and fuel tanks and armories and uh, all kinds of other goodies. But I'll tell you what, I've been vindicated to hell and returned all that social credit and more since the start of the pandemic.
1: <laughs> oh, see, you're exactly one of those. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel jealous. Um, my colleague who's in West Virginia, they have, you know, self-functioning kind of agriculture system there and not to be able to be as dependent on kind of mass markets that can be pretty disrupted and supply chains that are pretty fragile right now. Um, you know, there's something to that.
0: Yep. Uh, Let's uh, revisit the uh, Amish one more time and then move on. They have another very interesting custom, which you didn't mention, which I happen to know about called Rumspringa, which is where the uh, teens are given a couple of years to go out into the world and, you know, drink and whore and party or do whatever the hell they want or not. And they don't all do by any means do the bad stuff, but they're all encouraged to leave the community and see the real world for a couple of years. And only after they have done that do they come back and become confirmed in their churches and become actual members as adults of the Amish community. I think that's an interesting and brave feature to add into uh, a community like the Amish, you know, an intentional escape valve so that it doesn't become a self-perpetuating cult.
1: I think it's super important, and I know that Rumspringa has been a sort of topic of reality TV shows about the Amish, which I've found fascinating. But yeah, this opportunity to escape and to leave and to feel that as you come of age within the Amish community, that you have some degree of agency, um, that you're not just born into a culture, that you have no ability to leave behind or make your own life and destiny. You know, unfortunately, that is also accompanied by a bit of a shunning practice. So if you do choose to leave the community, I think, you know, it's it's kind of an exiled experience. But you know, you see young Amish that, you know, get to play video games for the first time and dance and just, you know, understand a bit more about mass society and modern civilization um, and then make a pretty intentional choice.
0: A very interesting idea. And it strikes me as an example of good faith. You know, the people are sufficiently confident in the values of their society that they're not trying to, uh, like so many cultish uh, communities do, uh, you know, try to keep People from knowing about the outside world at all. It's you know it's essentially saying go out and look at the outside world and then compare it to what you have here and choose.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for intentional communities to have kind of ritualized ways of gracefully exiting uh, <laughs> makes a lot of sense, and also for you know test runs. I know Damanher has this as well, where people can try out the community for a set period of time rather than just make a life binding commitment, which is you know different than. Take the nun's example of the Catholic Church of when you make your vows. I think it's really hard in this kind of commitment phobic age for people to feel like they can make that lifelong commitment to a community. And, you know, maybe the future of intentional communities is actually having, you know, a few different affiliated belongings with a number of different communities. Right. So the idea that just there's one sole community that you sort of pledge allegiance to versus, you know, that there's some overlapping communities that you might be a part of.
0: Yeah, in fact, in our proto B concept, we imagine each proto B having multiple sites. So, if there's proto B A, it might have twenty sites around the world, and people can move from one to the other to the other, and essentially stay within the same social operating system.
1: I think that's great, and also allowing for a little bit of you know that cultural variability um, for those you know different sites to have a bit you know have a bit of difference and to be able to an experience where people can travel and learn. I think it's, you know, that stagnation piece, you know, becomes really important again.
0: And uh, back to Dam and her example, uh, actually that uh, trial period seems like it cuts both ways, right? It allows you, the potential member, to decide whether this is right for you, but probably at least as importantly, it allows the community to decide if you are right for them.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And it makes a lot of sense. Like even when I lived in Germany, I know companies, you often are given a life contract when you're hired. And so companies have to be really careful about, you know, who they are hiring. And I think intentional communities likewise, you know, to have a bit of a filtering process or a commitment process um, where you decide if it's a mutual fit on both sides is just obvious.
0: That seems to, you know, fit the Example that uh, Ran Ambervitsky uh, was talking about, that if you don't have something like that, you'll have adverse selection for way too many lazy and disturbed people, frankly.
1: Oh, yeah. Or, some, you know, I think to your liminal moment comment earlier, people can get caught up in a sort of emotional high or a kind of ecstatic feeling upon first joining a community. But then in the day to day, I think that fades a little bit. And, um, you know, it has to be a more intentional choice.
0: Well, do you have any final thoughts? I think this has been a very interesting conversation, which I think our uh, our listeners will find interesting. If you want to hear more about the Game B movement, check out the Game B group on Facebook. Game B, all one word. Uh, any final thoughts, Alexa?
1: Jim, I'd be super interested in seeing some of what you're developing in terms of the design that you mentioned with the different prototypes. And I can share the community canvas Yeah. And I think for me, this article, I have so many different friends who are part of intentional communities. And so this article was a way for me to gain some historical perspective on these movements, you know, from the past and what we can learn in terms of this new wave of intentional communities for now, but also be a bit intellectually rigorous. And so sort of, um, guard against some of the emotions or attractiveness that I might see in these communities. And I think it's important that, you know, these communities are in service to, you know, a wider public and are these kind of Petri dishes for our overall culture to evolve. And so I really view them in that way and almost would love to be, you know, in conversation with more people as a sort of intentional community consultant, which is how we can develop these in more resilient
0: ways. Great. Well, I think we'll wrap it there. Thank you. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.